Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can follow me on Twitter, at ChestermanKate, for more information about the new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Now for the next few episodes of the podcast, we've got something a little different for you. In May 2022, as part of something we're calling Chronic Conditions Month, there is a series of seven webinars with live Q&A sessions, each focusing on a different long-term condition. The webinars, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to provide wide-ranging clinical education programme, focusing not only on the diagnosis and management of different chronic conditions, but also on the strategies required to address the complex and challenging interplay between coexisting morbidities. Healthcare professionals in the UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining. And to accompany the webinars, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which they provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So, without further delay, please enjoy the second in this series of special episodes. This one is brought to you by Dr Steve Holmes and Dr Yasir Javed, who are discussing the overlap between COPD and heart disease. Hello, I'm Yasser Javed and welcome to this podcast. I'm a GP with a specialist interest in cardiology uh, based in Northampton and I'm joined today by a very good friend and colleague, uh, Dr Steve Holmes, who's a GP with a huge passion and long-standing interest in respiratory medicine. He's based in Somerset. Um, And this podcast comes to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month 2022, which is taking place throughout the month of May. It will include a whole string of interactive and informative webinars designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing chronic conditions across a range of therapeutic areas. And today, in this podcast, we're going to be discussing a very important connection, the heart-lung connection, and more specifically, this overlap between chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, and heart disease. So, Steve, uh, very often uh, patients with uh, heart and lung disease will present with breathlessness or a a subtle reduction in effort tolerance give us a flavor for how straightforward it can be to to make a diagnosis establish a diagnosis of copd hi so great to see you again and hello everybody listening in yes if we're practical clinicians the first thing is it's very easy to look at a guideline and see a nice clear-cut absolutely barn door situation that we look for and sometimes it's easy but a lot of times there's a lot of shades of between white and black 50 shades of gray and that sort of 50 shades in real clinical practice means we always have to be applying our clinical acumen if i just probably talk through the typical person with copd and then perhaps yes you talk about the the similarities but your typical person with COPD will normally be diagnosed around the age of 65 
quite a few are younger when they're diagnosed and think in that situation we're thinking about other things other than smoking possibly cannabis or other substances but 90 percent of them have a smoking history if we're looking at examination they won't have some of the things that yes we'll talk about the cardiac problems the murmurs the irregular heart rates or they might do um and at times when they're symptomatic they'll be wheezy they will often have a cough breathlessness ongoing gradually reducing the amount they can do and what we tend to do to make a good diagnosis of copd is think full blood count make sure they're not anemic consider the other causes make sure they've had a chest x-ray so you're not embarrassed by lung cancer or something else like that and high quality spirometry brilliant well that that's um, and that's a fairly straightforward sort of diagnostic workup isn't it of a patient uh, with suspected copd so i guess for the typical heart failure patient uh, that i see um actually many of them don't present uh, with breathlessness a lot of them are going to present with a sort of reduction in effort tolerance so these are patients who maybe be putting these symptoms down to normal aging but there's something there that's concerning them in in relation to not being able to do as much as they they used to whether it's gardening whether it's walking up that slight incline to the shops and in these patients you'll take a, a history not just of the breathlessness uh, but also any associated symptoms and in heart failure you very often get symptoms uh, of congestion and that's well worth asking about and also typically be interesting to hear your thoughts on what happens with CAPD but typically the breathlessness in a in a heart failure patient does get significantly worse uh, when you lie flat what what happens uh, is there any positional uh, relation to breathlessness in CAPD Steve again the typical person tends not to have breathlessness when they lie flat and not to wake up at night breathless in in typical COPD and they tend to present with quite a few exacerbations so one thing that's interesting is that before diagnosis most patients have turned up five to six times with for their diagnosis of COPD I guess that's probably going to be true of quite a few patients with heart failure and one thing that struck me was that in COPD, the, the average age of diagnosis is 64. Hasn't changed for 20 years. Two years ago, when I looked at a review, heart failure average age of diagnosis, 74, hasn't changed for 20 years. We, we're not picking these people up earlier for some reason. No, we're not. Um, we're almost waiting for the patient to, to present with quite significant symptoms when actually we've probably missed the subtle decline in that uh, effort tolerance. I mean, in the history, obviously, just like in COPD, a smoking histories very crucial and these are shared sort of cardiorespiratory uh, risk factors often um alcohol i never forget to ask uh, about an alcohol history in a patient who potentially has uh or has suspected heart failure we do often miss the alcoholic cardiomyopathy and we have to tease that out of many patients and so one one bit of the history that I'll, I'll never forget to ask particularly a youngish patient who may not fit the typical bill of a uh, of, of a patient with heart failure is um, any exposure to chemotherapy particularly anthracycline chemotherapy so these are patients who've had maybe pediatric um, leukemias or breast cancer at a young age we know there can be a you know a decade's worth of uh, delay in terms of uh, damage to the uh, myocardium and presenting with heart failure but the typical risk factors uh, would be hypertension and ischemic heart disease i mean ischemic heart disease is the cause for around half to two-thirds of 
uh, of patients with uh, with reduced ejection heart failure in this country. So, so it's important to pick up patients with that history. Uh, what about examination, uh, Steve? Any any particular pointers on examination that would make you home in on a respiratory rather than a cardiovascular cause? Um, you often talk about variable wheeze, but it doesn't have to be there. I think often the examination is exclusion of different issues. Um, the other thing that a lot of us will be doing is peak flows when we get back to doing that after the pandemic. And usually the peak flow is about a third of normal and remains static throughout. But I, th- but I, but I agree with you. I think one of the real challenges is that history. It's gradual onset. And one of our colleagues, Hilary Pinnock, who's professor in Edinburgh and a GP in Kent, manage that one if you can, um, actually had a lovely story about uh, published in the BMJ, which talked about things like heart failure and COPD being a way of life, not an event. If you have a crushing central chest pain and a heart attack, everyone knows when that happened. People know when they suddenly lost blood from their bowel or noticed a lump in their breast. But for people with heart failure and COPD, it's often a gradual deterioration. They can't quite keep up with their grandchildren as quickly or their friends. And that makes it much more challenging for us in the clinical situation because they see it as a way of life. Absolutely. And and often they adapt their lifestyle to suit their underlying diagnosis to, to almost make them asymptomatic. And I think that's when it's helpful to maybe ask, uh, you know, husband, wife, children, that they often um, will notice that, uh, especially if they don't see them, you know, I, I see my dad maybe every couple of months and I'll probably notice uh, the decline more than he would uh, if it was a sort of a more insidious onset. I, I think in in heart failure in particular, there are probably more objective signs that you can uh, identify difficult to find signs often i mean a raised jvp notoriously a uh, difficult sign to find uh, particularly in primary care but if you do see someone with a with a jvp up to the earlobes um that's a sign of quite significant right atrial pressure and and, and congestion uh, pulmonary edema so um fluid in, in in the base of the lungs we can often hear those fine inspiratory crepitations um heart sounds i think are absolutely critical we need to make sure we're not missing the aortic stenosis you could argue part of the normal aging process but the most preventable cause of heart failure and uh, and clearly the pulse i mean atrial fibrillation is i call it the heart failure mimic um it can it can cause the same symptoms uh, similar signs and also uh, is a cause and effect uh, of heart failure but but Steve the one sign I really don't want to miss particularly my 75 year old slightly breathless patient is finger clubbing because for me finger clubbing um, is a, a sign of p- perhaps homing in on, on on a likely respiratory underlying cause particularly the pulmonary fibrosis I mean patients with cystic fibrosis the classic cause of finger clubbing often don't live long enough to present at the age of 75 I mean I've never seen that but but clubbing uh, for me just changes the flavor of that differential diagnosis yeah and I think if you spot clubbing first of all urgent chest x-ray one of the commonest reasons is lung cancer it can be an evidence of chronic ongoing inflammation so that's your sort of bronchiectasis or at times the interstitial lung diseases, it's very, very rare in COPD. So if you're making a diagnosis of COPD on the basis of clubbing, it really is worthwhile thinking again. And, and you probably, like me, when you listen in, you sometimes get a shock. You hear a, a very large pleural effusion. What unilateral, think cancer. Bilateral, 
think potentially cardiac or occasionally nephrotic stroke liver. But it's but it is important to get the stethoscope out. Still, it's not a redundant bit of kit that we bought at medical school. No, it's, it is. It, uh, well, I, I'm slightly biased. I think it's a critical part of the uh, assessment. As I said, the most important thing not to miss is that systolic murmur. It's usually very obvious. Second intercostal space, right sternal edge. If you hear a systolic murmur, and if you start getting familiar with murmurs, and and you realise that that second heart sound is becoming a bit soft, that's a sign of quite critical aortic stenosis and and these patients now if we can refer them in a timely fashion in a TAVI transcatheter aortic valve implantation is a very viable alternative to surgery can actually normalize almost normalize your life expectancy but I totally agree with you Steve Uh, one of the big red flags for me is making sure I don't miss small cell carcinoma of the lung Um, and and absolutely if you finger clubbing uh, you go straight for an urgent uh, x-ray other investigations I'd be looking to do fairly early early on if I suspected a cardiac cause would obviously be an ECG I mean a 12 lead ECG is is an incredibly good screen for ruling out anything significant uh, from a cardiac perspective a completely normal ECG obviously it's going to pick up the atrial fibrillation you're going to see things like left bundle branch block which are very commonly found in in significant structural heart disease but we're lucky Steve in in cardiology uh, I think we have the best screening test in medicine we've got a a blood test a hormone NT pro BMP which is released by the myocardium predominantly but not exclusively the left ventricular myocardium in response to stretch and it has almost a hundred percent negative predictive value for significant heart failure so but uh, but the other tests that you don't want to miss I don't know if you see this a lot Steve we still see a lot of patients referred for query heart failure simply because we haven't done the basics and we haven't ruled out the underlying colonic malignancy when we find a haemoglobin of 5.4. Yeah, no, I've seen a few of those over time as well. The person who comes in to see you and you think, they look very, very pale. And it's other reasons behind the symptoms they're getting. Um, yeah, no, I agree. And I, and I guess probably one of the things that a lot of colleagues would, would ask about, and certainly a lot of my nurse colleagues who are very keen to try and pick up diagnoses earlier... Um, often say is it worthwhile doing a chest x-ray every year in someone with COPD and, and I think there isn't the evidence there for that and we accept that now but quite a few people are starting to say should we be doing a screening pro BNP every year just to see whether things are deteriorating knowing that those comorbidities can coexist so commonly I don't know if you, you, you're aware of anything on that at the moment yeah I mean it can be useful I mean I use NT pro BNP essentially if, if you really want to simplify what an NT Pro BMP does, it helps you very much differentiate cardiac versus non-cardiac causes of uh, breathlessness. So I use it a lot in valve disease. As patients get older, they get a bit deconditioned. You don't know whether their worsening breathlessness is due to their deterioration of their valve disease or whether it's just age-related uh, deconditioning then an NT pro BMP is very helpful but I think to to use it serially in a patient whose whose symptoms haven't changed I think I mean that's certainly not guideline recommended and I think it possibly could open up a can of worms because there's lots of other causes of an elevated NT pro BMP including age which could end up meaning you do a lot more echocardiograms than you otherwise would that that fits in with the term vomit victim of medical imaging and technology where we start testing and then end up 
pushing people down roads that create anxiety and sometimes quite a lot of harm if you get into the situation of biopsying lung nodules or things like that. So, uh, yes, the, the Americans are keen on that at the moment. I'm not so keen on vomit. I haven't heard of that uh, acronym, but it's uh, you know I, I, I completely agree with the uh, with that concept. Uh, but Steve, uh, before we before we finish, we mustn't forget though that many patients with COPD and dare I say it, well I know many patients with heart failure often have other causes for their breathlessness that contributes to their symptoms and we know that COPD and heart failure have a huge overlap. In fact I've read in some studies almost 50% of COPD patients have an element of heart failure so you know we mustn't fall into the trap of once we've given a patient a label of one of these conditions to forget to hunt for the other sort of uh, exacerbating causes. I mean do you see that a lot in in your respiratory work? Yes, certainly I see a lot of overlap with patients who've had COPD for a long time developing heart failure. I think one of the things that stands out to me that's an important message about smoking is about 20% of people who smoke will develop COPD in their lifetime, but the other 80% don't. And that's important to recognise because there's a lot of people say, well, you've smoked and you've got a cough, therefore it must be COPD. We do need to go through the whole pathway to make that diagnosis. I think that's really important. But I think the other thing is when you feel breathless or tired, you don't want to exert. And that puts you into that horrible cycle of less activity. And when you are active, you feel more tired and you feel more breathless. And really, to me, that's one of the fundamental parts why we have um, cardiac rehab and pulmonary rehab and why we should be really pushing forward the agenda of getting people to use their hearts and lungs to their maximum to get the best benefit from it. Well, on that point, Steve, I mean, we've gone through, uh, you know, unique uh, times in the last couple of years, lockdown. Uh, there must be, you know, patients, a lot of our patients have become a more sedentary. Tell us about how deconditioning can contribute uh, to the sort of symptomology uh, of these patients. Right. I think I think the first thing is to, to reflect yourself. If you're used to biking 60 kilometres or running 20 kilometres um, and then you try and do twice that distance quickly or quicker, you find you get breathless. If you're not used to running or biking those distances and you try and do it, you feel absolutely shattered. That's because your lungs aren't getting used to it but you can train yourself up for that and most people can train themselves up to get more out of the system than they they're currently using i guess one of the things is in covid we were saying stay home stay safe and you're only allowed to go out and exercise for half an hour or whatever it was a day which actually gave all the wrong messages and although we had joe wicks for a certain age group a lot of people who were more senior there was no great um, push from the government to ensure they maintain fitness. What does deconditioning do? Well, it makes you more likely to have a heart attack, makes you more likely to be symptomatic when you exert yourself, it makes you more likely to falls, diabetes, hypertension, um, the list goes on and on. Osteoporosis, we, we've got a major problem on our hands with the lack of activity of our population at the moment. Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's such an important point, and that's why we've got to be sort of very holistic in our assessments of these patients. Just a, a couple of specific points for me, sort of tips that I uh, I think are very handy when you're when you're assessing patients, particularly ones who you feel have more of a cardiac uh, cause. Um, I'm I'm always hunting for COPD in my heart failure patients with a 
with a smoking history. And a, and a big clue is when you get the echocardiogram, which all suspected heart failure patients should have, always look at the right ventricular systolic pressure. Every echocardiogram has to report on this. It's you know an echocardiogram is a lot more than an ejection fraction. And if you start seeing pulmonary pressures more than 46 millimeters of mercury, think potentially uh, a, a cardiac uh, sort of comorbidity with their heart failure. Uh, the other issue that I want to address is uh, I'm still sadly seeing a lot of patients being denied probably the most effective treatment we have in heart failure, beta blockers, simply because they've got a diagnosis of COPD. Uh, Steve, just reassure us, if someone hasn't got significant reversibility on spirometry, I mean, beta blockers are completely safe uh, in these yeah, patients. We're, we're, on the, we're on the same page. I agree with you thoroughly. We can use beta blockers in people with COPD. That's been the case for a long period of time. Yep. And then, and then finally, a, a slightly as, as an aside, uh, look, looking at this cardiorespiratory link, um, obstructive sleep apnea for me and in cardiology has become such an important risk factor. We know it's a huge driver for a particular form of heart failure known as heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So always think of that as part of your differential in a patient uh, who's also got risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea. Plus, it increases your risk of developing atrial fibrillation sevenfold. So anyone with obstructive sleep apnea should get a pulse check, in my opinion, on uh, when they're reviewed. So... I. I would agree, and I think I think certainly in CAPD we should be thinking about a pulse check every year. I think in um, heart failure, the evidence for screening every patient every year probably isn't quite as good at the moment. But if you do a peak flow and that level is down, that should make you start to think, actually, is there an element of obstructive lung disease there as well? Fantastic. Steve, can I just say it's been an absolute pleasure to interact. I think we've had a really good cardiorespiratory uh, collaboration and i very much hope uh, members of the audience uh, also found this uh, helpful so thank you very much steve for your time and thanks for your, your expertise yes sir and i hope our enjoy audience enjoyed it there are more to come thank you yeah so thank you very much for listening we uh, you know as i hope you find this whole series useful so please do look on the website make sure you register on that chronic conditions website so you can listen to all the other podcasts in this series and also for our interactive webcasts brought to you as part of chronic conditions month 2022 so you can sign up at chroniconditions.co.uk. uk